Hi, and welcome to Health or Consequences. This is the second in a series of Massachusetts public health and healthcare policy conversations that we're having under Commonwealth Magazine's podcast label. I'm Paul Haddis from the Tufts University School of Medicine. My usual colleague for these podcasts, my partner in crime, as we refer to him, is John McDonough from the T.H. Chan Harvard School of Public Health. Unfortunately, John's in court this morning, not because of criminal activity, but because he's a juror. But uh, the show must go on because uh, healthcare issues go on, and we're delighted. I'm delighted to have in conversation today Andrew Dreyfus, CEO of our state's largest health insurer, Blue Cross and Blue Shield. We thought the conversation should go on. So welcome, Andrew. It's good to be here, Paul. Yes. Thanks for having me. And in John's honor, uh, we're going to try this about half hour together to uh, have you solve all of Massachusetts health care ills. I couldn't think of a better person to try to do that with. Uh, I'll for, do my best. Okay. Well, before we talk about the challenges, let's start a little bit on the innovation side, which you and, and Blue Cross have been uh, known for. For over a decade now, Blue Cross has been a pioneer in the accountable care movement or the movement to move away from strictly paying fee-for-service to paying more under a fixed budget with you know value-based care and, and, and appropriate incentives. And you've named them the, quality, the alternative quality contract or the AQC. Are you still enthused about how that model is done and, and, and where it's going? I am, Paul. And first, thanks for having me on your, on your show. A, a decade ago, as you point out, we saw that we were, there were two big problems in healthcare that we wanted to try to solve. One is that there was uneven quality, uh, there were safety issues, and uh, patients weren't always getting the care that evidence suggested they should. The second was, and, and we live with both of these still today, there was an affordability issue and costs were growing at double digits. Premiums were going up in a way that were unaffordable for businesses and individuals. And we realized that the most powerful lever we had to try to influence and improve quality and affordability was the way we paid for care. And for 75 years in this country, health insurance companies like ours had paid based on the volume of care. The more visits or admissions or tests or procedures, the more physicians and hospitals would be paid with very little attention to the outcomes or the results of the care. So we uh, designed a program, was really the first in the nation, in which we would pay more based on the outcomes and the, and the results uh, and not just on the level of activity, and we would reward higher quality. And as you say, that was called the alternative quality contract. Had we known it would have been so widely adopted and so influential nationally, we would have given it a better name like Blue Breakthrough or Blue Innovation because uh, everything's blue in our, in our system. But uh, the name stuck, and uh, now 85% of the physicians in Massachusetts are operating under it. Um, independent studies have shown that, in fact, it has had the desired result of quality has improved and the rate of growth in costs has slowed. Um, we're very excited that we think soon the eight-year evaluation of that, uh, that program will, will be published sometime, we hope, in the, in the next six months, and, and I'm hopeful that it's going to show continued success. You think you're going to get better results than what some of the Medicare ACO demonstrations have shown thus far? I think we will. And so, as you point out, Paul, the National Medicare Program adopted a, a kind of similar model. There are different variations of it. In fact, our program was actually written into the Federal Register, into the, into the federal regulations for their program. One of the reasons we may have been more successful is that because we're local 
And because we know these uh, physician practices and hospitals, we're able to work very closely with them, trying to provide them with data and information on their patients, issuing reports, in some cases daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly reports, that um, point out opportunities for them to both improve quality and especially improve affordability. Mm -hmm. So I think that the closeness we have, the kind of richness of the data in the local market may help our our groups uh, perform at a higher level than nationally. Okay, well, let's move from that effort, which is over a decade old, into something that's really now started as a pilot, as I understand it, with South Shore Hospital, attempting to share some savings with that hospital for its efforts to try to reduce the overall cost of care for Blue Cross enrollees who live in the service area, even if they're not regularly regular patients of that hospital. Tell us about that concept. Yeah, well, we're, we're really excited about this new program. So we took a look um, with the retrospective eye of a decade worth of work on our, our payment model, which was really focused on physician care, and realized that for most hospitals, although they were collaborating with physicians, under our previous program that we didn't think they were sufficiently engaged and that those old incentives to try to admit more patients, uh, do more procedures were still active and that the fee-for-service mentality was still uh, kind of cascading through our healthcare system. And so we designed a program where really we sent our team back into what we call the cave. And the cave is, is, is just the name of a place they go and, and think big ideas and innovate and challenge themselves. And we looked at other models, and we invited in uh, clinical leaders and others, and we realized that the hospitals did still have incentives to do more. And we had in South Shore Hospital a partner, a CEO who had come from the state of Maryland, where they have a kind of special publicly sanctioned uh, global payment program. Sort of a budget for the hospital, per se. Exactly. And, and we proposed a, a new program to South Shore, and we kind of designed it a little bit with them, uh, which was very interesting, and they are, uh, to our to our surprise and delight, uh, accepting accountability for all the for the cost of all the patients in their community, even if those patients see physician practices that aren't affiliated with the hospital. So it is truly more of a community or population health model where they're going to be thinking about uh, the the health and especially the, and the affordability of everyone who lives in their service area. It's causing them to rethink. So, for example, one of the early programs they're looking at is using EMTs differently. In a traditional system, the, the role of the EMT is to go to a person's house or, or another setting, uh, stabilize the patient, and bring them to the hospital. Always bring them to the hospital. That's the incentive. Here, some of the EMTs, which are actually affiliated with the hospital, are going to be looking at, is this a situation where we can help manage the patient, keep them in their home, uh, and and improve their care without, you know, burdening the system with an expensive hospitalization. If, if your cavemen and women figured out how to uh, come up with the metrics to both measure how they're doing and then figure out if there is some savings that the hospital could participate yeah. in that. So we we have we have very uh, strong metrics here. Uh, we have a way to attribute uh, to kind of um, make sure that we know which patients are in the service area, what their spending was last year. We can look and then year over year and see what kind of savings are being generated and then share those savings uh, with the hospital. Like in our uh, earlier model with physicians, though, there are strong quality components. So there's never an incentive to um, provide a patient with less care than they need. It's just there's an incentive to try to avoid hospitalizations, avoid emergency department visits when it's clinically appropriate. 
and and that's in a lot of cases. And so better use of urgent care, better use of evening and weekend hours and physician practices, better preventive care, better mental health and care for substance use disorders. There's a lot of ways you can kind of attack the problem. We're trying to give them the tools to and the incentives to do that. Do you see this as a South Shore Hospital demonstration only for a number of years, or do you want to try to bring the pilots to others? Yeah, we definitely, we want to learn, and, and, and we did that. We had some early adopters with our physician model uh, a decade ago. We did learn a lot, and we did then adapt and, and change it. We've already been approached by several other hospitals in s- kind of similarly situated in the state. And so we're hopeful that um, perhaps, uh, not for 2019, but because we're already in that year, but 2020, we'll have other uh, pilots going with other hospitals. It seems to think getting institutions or providers to think about patient total cost of care and geographically, you know, uh, uh, where patients come from and servicing them, no matter whose provider system they're in, is an interesting sort of thought to try to move the, the model ahead. Yeah, you know, I got an interesting call way back when we began our earlier model from a hospital CEO. He said, let me get this straight, Andrew. Are you telling me that I should probably not build those, uh, you know, 50 new surgical suites that I have on the drawing board? Instead, I should take that money and hire nurses and social workers and case managers and keep people out of the hospital? And I said, bingo, you got it. Okay. Well, we, we, we wish you luck with that one because yeah. it seems to me to be uh, uh, an important model to try, to try to evidence. Let's move, though, from sort of the innovation and the future to sort of the present, if we can. And uh, so I do want to talk a little bit about the current healthcare market, including the insurance side. But let's start with the provider side, the folks that you face uh, across the negotiating table. And maybe there we could start with... Um, your thoughts on sort of the the newest transaction that, that we all paid attention to in that provider space, which is the now approved Beth Israel Leahy merger. Uh, your thought about that, and, and including the ultimate resolution and, and conditions placed on it, and will the net effect of that merger help or hurt the Massachusetts healthcare marketplace? Yeah. Well, I think I think that's yet to be seen. I am hopeful about the merger of the Beth Israel Leahy because I am a believer that better coordination of care, less fragmentation in the system uh, can help support the kind of more affordable, higher quality care. I think every one of these transactions has to be judged through the lens of affordability. We have a very expensive healthcare system here in Massachusetts. And I think the, both the Health Policy Commission and the Attorney General's Office did a very good job in trying to place a set of conditions on this transaction that promotes that, you know, uses the lens of affordability and promotes affordability. There is consolidation in the market. I will say that in other markets around the country, consolidation, especially of hospitals, has not produced savings. In fact, it's often produced the opposite result. So, um, more concentration of hospitals, hospital mergers have resulted in higher prices and therefore higher premiums. What's different in Massachusetts is that unlike in those other states where those um, uh, mergers have occurred, here we have a state agency, the Health Policy Commission, that has set a benchmark in terms of cost growth for the state. That, That cost growth benchmark does wield an enormous amount of pressure, indirect pressure, on the healthcare system, and we take it very seriously. In the last year in which the, um, the data was collected, 
The growth of healthcare spending was half of what it had been previously, half of the benchmark. Uh, we're still waiting for the final, final numbers to come in. So we are encouraged by that. We're going to do our job to push hard on these concentrated delivery systems, both on the, the price that they charge, but more importantly, we're going to continue to advance payment models, which hold them accountable both for a cost and for quality. About um, 70 to 80 percent of our payments are going to go to five large systems in wow. the state. And so it's, it is a different market, and, um, and we're very aware of that. We're very aware of the responsibility we have on behalf of especially our employer customers to, to uh, keep cost controls strictly in place. You know, if you're not in one of those five systems, and especially often that's some of our uh, isolated, at least on the institutional side, community providers, they're going to worry uh, is there going to be any monies left for them at the end of the day after the Beth Israel Leahy gets the kind of price increases? You know, it's likely to demand up to the limit if the AG will allow them the, the usual suspects that are that yeah. are well paid. What would you say to them if they say, is there anything well, left for them? Yeah, well, um, I'd say the answer is, is yes, <laughs> and that, you know, we treat each hospital and or each health system on its own uh, against a set of standards, uh, relative standards that others are paid, but also... You know, we look at their efficiency. We look at their their cost, ba- their underlying costs. In some cases, there's an advantage to be being a lower paid hospital. So we offer to our customers a set of of insurance products, which place hospitals in so-called tiers. Mm-hmm. So they're called tiered products, mm-hmm. and there are strong incentives to our members to um, use the lower cost providers, whether that be physicians or hospitals. And so, for example, the copay or cost share that a member has is much lower. So let's give an example. Um, to, uh, to go to an emergency department of a low-cost hospital might be $100 copay, and it might be 1000 with a high cost. We're now starting to – we have a new program called Smart Shopper where we're actually giving information to our members – and if they um, use the smart shopper and use a less expensive provider, we're actually going to send them a check directly. Mm. So rather than their copay being less, we're actually going to pay them to attend lower cost uh, settings. So no, that's that's novel. We've uh, I think on the consumer side, we've been talking about is there a way to get a check back rather than just always having to pay? And I guess your evidence right. That. Yeah, we're we're going to start to do that. And so um, you know, it's not always, and even in the case of the Beth Israel, I think we would encourage them not necessarily to raise their prices, but to to view themselves in the market as a kind of value-based provider um, that is less expensive than some alternatives in the market. Fair enough. Well, let's let's turn a little bit to the insurance side, where you spend most of your time thinking yeah. about. And um, there's some big picture issues as well as specific market ones, but let's start with the big picture because uh, you can't pick up the newspaper these days without reading about some kind of organization, including companies you didn't historically think were in the healthcare business, whether it's J.P. Morgan, Amazon, and Berkshire uh, trying to come together to f- figure out ways perhaps for their 1 million uh, employees collectively to do better on, on their health plan. And maybe there's evidence from what they can do for the other 150 million people in the country that they get their health insurance uh, that way, or the Aetna CVS merger. Uh, tell us your big picture thoughts about what's happening uh, in this space and its implications for the health insurance market in Massachusetts. Yeah, sure. Well, uh, we are watching these deals very carefully, and let's first start with the the kind of um, convergence of players at the national level. So, as you point out, Aetna, 
um, was acquired by CVS. Um, Cigna, another big national plan, bought Express Scripts, the largest uh, uh, pharmacy benefit manager. And United Healthcare already owned a huge subsidiary called Optum, which is growing rapidly. And in the case of Optum, buying physician practices, including here in Massachusetts, where they bought re- the Reliant practice, the old Fallon Clinic. In, in Southboro. In, in, yeah, in the Worcester area, Central Mass. Mm-hmm. And so we are seeing the emergence of three very large kind of Fortune 25 size companies uh, in both nationally and they're all in the Massachusetts marketplace. And they have enormous capital and, and free cash available to them to invest in healthcare. Now, on the one hand, I could say there are some advantages to that because healthcare probably deserves some disruption. And, and so in some ways, we always welcome competitors and we, we take it upon ourselves to just lift our performance and outperform them, and we are we remain the market leader uh, in Massachusetts. I do sometimes worry a little bit about, um, you know, all those companies are publicly traded companies, and so their ultimate accountability is to their shareholders, and they have to, on a quarterly basis, uh, produce earnings that, uh, you know, are in line with their shareholder expectations. Um, in contrast, uh, Blue Cross, or for that matter, Harvard Pilgrim, Tufts, Fallon, the other not-for-profit health plans in Massachusetts, we're accountable to the community and, 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 and our customers as a subset of the community. It's a, it's a different mission. We are mission-driven organizations. And I would argue that some of the most important changes that have happened in Massachusetts over the last 10 or even 20 years have been a result of the special collaborative nature of the Massachusetts healthcare community. Explain so, that for me. What do well, you mean so, by that? Um, you know, before national coverage reform happened here in Massachusetts, plans like Blue Cross, in fact, it started with the Blue Cross Foundation and included other plans, hospital systems, community health centers, advocacy organizations like Healthcare for All came together to kind of design and support uh, what became the Massachusetts Universal Healthcare Health Reform Experiment. And we still, to this day, have 97 or 98 percent of the adults in Massachusetts have coverage far beyond any other state in the country, almost 100% of the kids. That's Western European levels of coverage. Mm-hmm. I think that happened because there's a special kind of collaborative spirit in Massachusetts. That same spirit we applied to payment reform that we spoke about earlier, Paul, where um, we started to pay differently here at Blue Cross. Harvard, Pilgrim, and Tufts also had their own plans to try to adopt to a kind of quality or value-based payment system. We had a lot of collaboration. Most recently, it's been on the opioid issue. And so around addiction and substance use, we formed a not-for-profit with Partners Healthcare, GE, and and Boston Medical Center and others where we're trying to have the private sector play a complementary role to the important role that state government and Governor Baker especially have played in trying to fight the opioid epidemic. I'm not sure that those kind of collaborations exist in any other state. And I would worry that if the publicly traded plans became the dominant uh, face of health insurance in Massachusetts, we might lose something special. So I think they offer um, challenging com- competition, and we have to compete uh, with them for, for uh, customers just like anyone else. It's, it's interesting, sort of an observation that I would make about what you're saying is, you know, will sort of nonprofit values and partnerships and quality Trump maybe some of the big capital needed innovation that could happen or even more effective pricing possibly that some of these large entities can bring to the state and employers and consumers 
are presented an interesting choice there, potentially. They are. And, you know, I, w- I had a conversation with the CEO of a, of a local a prominent company um, lately about this a little bit. And he pointed out that he feels very aligned with plans like Blue Cross. In this case, it was around issues of diversity and inclusion, which we um, is a huge priority at our company in, in a whole bunch of ways from you know, the, the people we hire to the way we work together to the way we purchase goods to the way we uh, invest in the community mm-hmm. to the culture we have and the way we think of issues like health disparities and cultural competence. That was very aligned with that company's values as well. And they want to buy from a, from a health plan that is, has a similar kind of values base as they do. So I'm um, hopefully that people will continue to see the value. It's also an important issue in the legislature because at the end of last session, as you may know, Paul, there was a proposal, a bill that almost passed in the legislature that would actually have put a new tax or assessment on health on health plans like yes, ours. Yes, to help pay in part for raises to community to hospitals. Community hospitals. Yeah. And um, we already pay several hundred million dollars of taxes and fees and assessments to state government and some to the federal government. And, and we understand that's part of the responsibility of being a corporate citizen here. We always want to be careful that um, the not-for-profit plans are not ever disadvantaged in those kind of scenarios. And I think in this legislative mm-hmm. session, there'll be a new discussion about the needs of community hospitals, other discussions about uh, mental health is, is a big area of need in Massachusetts. There's also, I think, some early discussions and some concerns about the growth in premiums and what's called the small group or merged market here in Massachusetts. So in those discussions, we want to be sure that people understand that we don't want to disadvantage in not-for-profit plans. In fact, we want to make sure there's always a level playing field and that everyone understands the value of mission-driven not-for-profit health care here in Massachusetts. Well, you know, let's, let's build on that, especially since you started to mention the legislature and where things might go this year. And we know the governor is coming out next week with his, his budget, but he did in his inaugural speech talk about wanting to do something in the telemedicine space, uh, behavioral health, talked about community hospitals, a little bit about the price variation issue. I can't remember whether he mentioned pharma or not, but I want you to speak to the pharma issues. Say something about uh, what you would like to see happen this year or this session legislatively. Well, uh, in the last session, as I mentioned, there was a bill which came close to passage and had some very positive features. One thing that we're hoping we can reach a consensus on this year is the so-called issue of surprise billing. Out-of-network care. Out-of-network care. So this is an example where uh, a, a, a patient sees a doctor who they believe to be in their health plan's network, and it turns out sometimes it's a they go for surgery and the surgeon's in the network, but the anesthesiologist or the radiologist that reads the film is out of the network, suddenly they get a a really large bill, um, a surprise bill, and they're responsible for for a substantial section of it. We should be able, and other states have already figured this out, we should be able to agree on a standard rate for those out of network. There should be a way for consumers to understand that. We should work hard to get as many of these physicians and other providers into the networks. And, and no consumer should be faced with these kind of surprise bills. It's, the healthcare system is complex and expensive and fragmented enough today without that problem. So that's an issue we hope the legislature tackles. There were other positive features in that bill, some, some which would extend um, the privileges of certain non-physician 
uh, uh, health professionals like nurse practitioners and physicians. Mid-level dental practitioners. Dental practitioners. Those are really needed, especially uh, in low-income communities in Massachusetts where there are some access gaps for dentistry or for primary care. So those are some of the issues we hope the legislature looks at. I think we need to continue to work on both um, substance use disorder and mental health care in Massachusetts, so I'm hoping we'll see some activity in that area. Um, so I, I think we'll I've heard you say the uh, about pharma pricing and or what about the plight of community hospitals yeah. and pricing and the price variation issue, which the Health Policy Commission tells us yeah. is still an important challenge. Well, why don't we? Those are separate issues. Why don't we right. take them separate? Sure. First, on the on the pharma issue, it's hard for state government to actually impose any sort of price controls on 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 pharmaceuticals uh, here in Massachusetts. But one of the things we want to see is the state has a very rigorous process through the Health Policy Commission. On, on which you, which you serve, Paul, so mm-hmm. you participated in this, mm-hmm. um, to look at the, the sources and drivers of health spending. Um, right now, the fastest growing portion of the healthcare dollar is uh, paying for uh, expensive drugs, you know, some of which are breakthrough products that are changing uh, di- uh, difficult chronic conditions, but the costs and the prices have been going up dramatically. We need to get the data. We need to have the scrutiny of that side of the healthcare spending, just like we have on health plans and physicians and hospitals, nursing homes. Fair enough. They sort of they, they sort of uh, escaped any real transparency right. and examination right. the last time with it. And this issue of uh, so-called specialty drugs, these kind of high cost, usually injected or infused drugs, is really driving health healthcare spending. About fifty percent of all spending on pharmaceuticals in a year or two are going to come from these specialty drugs. Wow. Again, many of them, you know incredible drugs that have been breakthrough for a lot of illnesses, but but the prices have been going up dramatically. And in almost every case, there's no alternative or generic substitution for these drugs. In the case of the variation, it is a complicated issue. There's variation, as we know, in every market uh, around the country. We've not shown that there's greater variation in Massachusetts than in other markets. However, as you point out, there are a group of hospitals that I think it may be a smaller list than than some might argue, but a group of hospitals, especially those in inner cities who are serving a high percentage of Medicare and Medicaid patients, who essentially, because those systems, especially the Medicaid program, pays much less than commercial insurance, they have a hard time uh, financially. And so we probably need some way uh, to uh, make sure that for those hospitals that are needed, that we we protect them. And uh, these are the so-called... Um, smaller disproportionate share hospitals that are in cities like Springfield and Holyoke and Brockton and others. What's the best way to do that? I'm not sure we've really come up with that, but Blue Cross is certainly um, wants to participate in a solution for them. We just want to be sure that the hospitals that are helped are truly needed, uh, that we understand what the money is being used for, and that in some cases, some early forms of these bills, hospitals were actually part of systems that had at the center of the system very well compensated academic medical centers yeah. were actually going to benefit from the bill. That didn't make a lot of sense for yeah. us. So in these in these kind of cases, the details really matter. Okay. Do you think that the, that contributing to the resources to help some of those needy and deserving, as you just tend to describe them, community hospitals, might come from other hospitals who tend to do very well currently? In the- well, in, in the previous uh, versions of the bills, uh, both health plans like ours and some of the higher-paid hospitals were subject to an assessment to help uh, pay 
for those lower paid or, or lower cost hospitals uh, that may be appropriate um, in this environment. Again, the details matter on this, and, and one of the things we're going to be really focused on, back to our earlier conversation, Paul, is to make sure that not-for-profit health plans in Massachusetts, like Blue Cross and others, aren't disadvantaged, and that mm -hmm. the large national plans um, that, by the way, produce enormous profits, spend less on medical care as a percentage of the premium dollar than we do, that they're included, so the Aetna's, the Cigna's, United, now CVS and others, that they pay their that fair they share. They would contribute as well. So, okay. and, and we do have mechanisms today to pay for other needed services like uncompensated care in hospitals, and there are fair ways to do these assessments, so we're going to be taking that message to, to Beacon Hill this year. Fair enough. Since we're getting closer to the end of our time together, I want to give you a little chance to talk uh, about some big picture issues. Yeah. So let, let's start one that's uh, in conversation now, especially as we're starting to hear some folks come out thinking about running for president on the Democratic Party side in 2020, but there's discussion around uh, single payer. Some call yeah. that Medicare for all. Some have different labels and different approaches under single payer. Uh, what's your thought about that and uh, where it might be going and what's the implication of those, of those discussions for uh, private health insurance yeah. companies? Well, first of all, I think I, we are going to have the debate, as you pointed out, Paul, and I welcome it. So um, I am a strong and we are a strong advocate of universal coverage. And we still leave tens of millions of Americans out of the health insurance system. And, and there's strong evidence that having health insurance improves health. And so I think everyone in America should have health care. So to the extent that the single-payer or Medicare for all debate brings us back and focuses on the plight of people without health insurance, I think that's a positive. Um, I think we'll end up, you know, some people argue that we should try to model our system on the Canadian system. I think that may be difficult. We'll probably have to design a uniquely American system. My first instinct is to look at what we already have, which is the Affordable Care Act, and say, how could we strengthen that? There are maybe 15 states, for example, which haven't yet to do the Medicaid expansion that was included that in that. Big states like Texas and Florida, that would bring millions of people who currently without insurance, into insurance. I also think that having a debate about Medicare for All, one of the instincts is um, that we spend too much on the administration of the healthcare system. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. And so to the extent that this also triggers a debate about how health insurance and healthcare can be more efficient, uh, that's a good thing. There have been some proposals that would be so-called Medicare buy-in that would allow people without health insurance, maybe in a certain age, like people over 50 or 55, to buy in early into the Medicare program. I think that's something we should take a serious look at. So I'm going to, I'm enthusiastic about the debate. I'm going to enjoy participating in it. I think there are some other European models in, in, in Germany and in other, Switzerland. in Switzerland, which have come up with kind of unique public and private uh, uh, systems. I think at the core, we have to uh, make a decision as a society that healthcare is a right, not a privilege, it's something I support, and that everyone should have health insurance. Let's decide that first. And then once we've decided that, let's say, given what we have today, how could we design a program that could get the rest of the, of the public into some health insurance system, whether it's through their employer, 
through a public program like Medicaid or Medicare, or through some new uh, program that we want to design. We've come very close in Massachusetts. We've actually proved you can do it. Um, and I encourage, I'll encourage people to come back to Massachusetts from Washington and look and see what we've accomplished, see how adaptable it might be for other states. Well, you know, the, the ultimate goal of, of health insurance for all, in, in part, is to help contribute to good health. So let's, right. let's end up our discussion today on health and share with me your thoughts about Blue Cross's responsibilities for that broader call it public health, and sometimes people talk about at the, at the largest level social determinant issues, whether it's things like housing and adequate transportation systems, or sometimes maybe closer to home is sort of the individual determinants, um, social determinants that, that you tend to be a little bit more involved with, like supporting some decision-making at end of life or, or uh, uh, helping people get uh, the kinds of um, support they need if they're opiate addicted. But, but uh, to talk about, about the Blue Cross's responsibility in those, in those so-called upstream and midstream areas. Uh, well, first of all, Paul, it's, it's a great question because too often we talk about health care and not enough about health. And we know that actually health care, meaning medical care services, are actually not the most powerful determinant of someone's health. Much more powerful is where people live, um, how, how they, you know, what kind of healthy lifestyles they have, um, are they, uh, are they adequate cool, nutrition, uh, and nutrition, poverty, housing, transportation, mm -hmm. education itself is an important predictor of good and health. issues of equity. I'm sure you would agree and, too. And um, absolute issues yeah. of equity, uh, and and we know this because we see great disparities in 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 health based on on income, race, uh, you know, zip code, et cetera. So I think we do have, as a health plan, as, and as the largest health plan that's in every community in Massachusetts, we do have a responsibility here. We're kind of tackling, and tackling it in several, several ways. Through our company, we've actually focused our charitable giving on what we call healthy living. And so we're focused on both sustainable environments, which is another important contrib contributor to public health, uh, to healthy foods uh, and, and, and exercise. And we have a special program we're really interested in in Dorchester and Common Square, um, where we're actually funding uh, the Appalachian Mountain Club, the local uh, Common Square Health Center, um, the Y, some peer support programs and others, so that physicians there can actually write prescriptions not for drugs, but for exercise, for healthy food, and we're bringing the These aren't necessarily your patients who are, I mean, I should say your, your uh, beneficiaries who are... Yeah, this are, is just people right. who, live, who are patients mm -hmm. at, at Common Square, mm -hmm. and they get, and, and we're funding a multi-year kind of incubator program there that hopefully will demonstrate that we can get better results um, by prescribing uh, healthy living and, and exercise and diet and nutrition be, uh, being outside and then collaborating with organizations like Appalachian Mountain Club, the Y, uh, a food organization called Healthy Table um, in, in, in Dorchester. So, and we have some other experiments like that. Our foundation also is very focused on so-called social determinants of health. There, the focus has been more on housing, also somewhat on food. So we're actually funding some housing programs, which is very new for a health plan like mm -hmm. ours to fund housing programs that are supporting uh, uh, certain communities and certain, certain um, organizations who are trying to bring that link between housing, good housing, uh, and, and larger health. 
Boston Medical Center has, has done some great programs in this area that we've also taken a look at. So we do feel we have a responsibility. I don't think it's something we can tackle alone. Fair enough. Uh, we have a big affordable housing problem in Massachusetts. We have food deserts, so-called, where people can't get healthy food in certain inner-city neighborhoods. But we're trying, through these demonstration programs and through these grant programs, build an evidence case that says these are investments which make sense. There are other ways to improve people's health outside of the medical care system, and let's start making these investments. There's been some strong research that has shown some European countries that they get better health outcomes, not because their medical care is necessarily superior, but because they make much deeper and broader investments in these social determinants of health. Andrew Dreyfus, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts today from uh, healthcare to public health. And in fact, I want to let our, our podcast uh, listeners know that, that next month we're going to be interviewing Dean Sandro Galea of the BU School of Public Health, maybe to, to build on some of the themes that you raised today. Andrew, thank you very much. Thanks for uh, having me, Paul. I appreciate it. Thank you.